It was a mythic, perfect story. It was a mythic, perfect story, and it wasn't true. That was Lance Armstrong, 2013, confessing to none other than Oprah that he cheated his way to seven Tour de France victories. It was a mythic, perfect story, and it wasn't true. Friends, who else comes to your minds when you think about a tragic fall? Right? Athletes, politicians, celebrities, a couple TV evangelists thrown in there. Right? Sadly, the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And it's easy to point the finger when our public figures fall. We've, we've all done it. We've all sat there and watched those interviews, maybe taking some secret or not so secret pleasure, depending on who it is that's doing the confessing. But let's ask in our own lives, right, don't, we, don't we look back? We look back and we ask, why did I make that choice? Right, and how did I convince myself that no one would find out? Right, did I really believe that the God of the universe, the God who sees all, wasn't watching? I bring all that up because at the end of his life, I believe King Solomon was asking similar questions. Right, this mighty king, as we'll hear in our passage this morning, this mighty king comes crashing down. And Solomon's fall is one of the most dramatic. It's one of the most consequential. It's heartbreaking. It's shocking. It has all the ingredients that go into making a fall truly tragic. And yet... And yet it really is one of the most instructive. Because during much of his life, as we've, as we've learned, how did Solomon instruct his people? It was through his wisdom. But the irony here is that at the, at the end of his life, his parting lesson comes to us through his foolish decision. And so this is our, our goal. We want to learn very simply, we want to learn from Solomon's tragic fall to avoid our own. And so if you have your Bible, the passage will also be on the screen, but we'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, and our focus this morning is on verses 1 to 13. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. That's a lot of anniversaries and birthdays to remember. <laughs> and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant, In my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We're finishing up. This is our last sermon on the life of King Solomon. So now it's a good time, appropriate time for a pop quiz. You laugh, but um, you should laugh. I can't do that, but just humor me. Let's ask what set Solomon apart. Let's think back and, and And think, what made him such a mighty man? And it all began with his what? His wisdom. When Solomon, as he was beginning to take the throne, as his reign was beginning, we remember that he asked God for an understanding mind in order to govern the people. And God basically supersized his request. And so God answered Solomon saying, I will give you a wise and discerning mind that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon wasn't just wiser than most. He didn't just crack the 90th percentile. He wasn't a, a big fish in a small pond. Right? His wisdom, we're told, it surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East, all the wisdom of Egypt. This was a man mighty in wisdom. But along with his wisdom, Solomon stood out for his wealth. His wealth. Back in chapter 3, where Solomon is, is praying and asking God for wisdom, God tacked on a little extra something. It's kind of like when you're surprised that your entree comes with a free dessert. You know, Solomon, in addition to his wisdom, he was given riches and honor so that, again, no king could even compare with him. And right before our passage that we read this morning out of chapter 11, Right before this passage, we get this extensive, this very detailed account in chapter 10 of of Solomon's 
rivaled wealth. So let's listen to just a few things that we're told. We're told that the weight of gold that came to him in one year was 666 talents. And since you know the conversion, I don't need to tell you, but it was a lot. He made an ivory throne for himself and he overlaid it with, you guessed it, gold. All of his drinking vessels were made of gold. He had a fleet of ships that once every three years brought back gold, silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. I get this picture of Solomon living in the fanciest zoo there ever was. And so year by year, year by year, Solomon continued to be the mightiest man in terms of his wealth and his wisdom. But maybe most of all, as we've seen, Solomon was mighty because of his worship, right? Nothing made Solomon stand out more than his role in leading Israel to worship the Lord. We remember that he built the temple. And when, the, when all the construction was done and Solomon was standing there in front of the people dedicating the temple, this is part of what Solomon asked. He prayed, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. That's a prayer that gets it. You see, the man who built the temple He knew, he truly knew at least at one time in his life that true worship wasn't a matter of a fancy, ornate building, but that true worship was a matter of obedience from the heart. And that's the kind of spiritual leader any people would want. Someone who never fails to keep the main thing the main thing. And so Solomon was mighty, yes, because of his wisdom because of his wealth. But most of all, Solomon was mighty because we're told that he loved the Lord. And we see him leading his people to do the same. And so Solomon was wise. He was discerning. Solomon had more than enough in the bank. His theology was orthodox. And so friends, who's the last person you'd expect to have a tragic fall. The last person you'd expect whose heart would turn away from the Lord. Whose wisdom do you trust? Who appears to lack nothing? Whose prayers, whose teaching have blessed you? And that's who Solomon was. Solomon was the guy that, that people leaned on. He was the guy that people would crowd around to hear his proverbs, his prayers. He was the guy who would have been praised for his building campaigns. People would have been amazed at his wealth, even a little proud, that people would come from all over just to be in the presence of their king. And then in our passage this morning, we are told three times 
that this king's heart, this mighty king, that he had turned away from the Lord that he once loved. Like the king who, this king who once built the house of the living God now ends by building places to worship idols, false gods. Twice in this man's life, God appeared to him, spoke directly to him, instructing him how to actually build up this kingdom by keeping his commandments. But here, God appears to Solomon to tell him that his kingdom is going to be torn apart because of his disobedience. And so we have to ask, how did this man end up here? You know, one of my great frustrations is looking at books on my shelf, books I know I've read and not being able to remember all the details. It hasn't kept me from buying more books, but still frustrating. And looking at these books and asking, what was, what was that author arguing? And how did he make his case? And how did all the subpoints fit together? And, and sure, sometimes I can, I can ballpark it. I can recall a few nuggets, maybe get the gist basically right. But is that really knowledge? Is that really what makes someone wise? Here's my point. I think for Solomon, God's word became just another book on the shelf. He couldn't remember in detail. Maybe just had the gist of it. You know, we know that our memories fail us. They disappoint us. And that's why in, in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of our Bible, God had Moses write down this instruction for Israel's future kings. This was long before Solomon lived. But God gave Moses what would safeguard every king. And so God told Moses to write that when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it. He shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. I don't think Solomon just woke up one day and decided, you know what? Time to do some evil. He did great evil because of a gradual, subtle, maybe not even noticeable slide. Right? Solomon's downfall began with his neglect. Right? It was his carelessness with God's word. Right? His inattentiveness, his unwillingness to heed its warnings. Right? Before Solomon's great betrayal, Right before his heart fully turned away from the Lord, before he was participating in false worship, I think Solomon was choosing to enjoy what God strictly prohibited in his word. 
You see, just before this passage that we just read in Deuteronomy about the king making a copy of the law, just before it, we read that God prohibited Israel's kings from acquiring many horses, taking foreign wives, having excess silver and gold. And remember, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, as it leads into our passage that we read, it is a record of Solomon's vast multitude of horses. It's a catalog of all of his gold and silver. It's clear. Before Solomon worshipped these false gods, before his heart turned away, Solomon had already turned his attention away from God's words. I think of it like this. You know, if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon or some other natural wonder, you can close your eyes right now, right? And you can get a picture in your mind of what you saw. But that memory, that memory doesn't pack the punch, right? It doesn't inspire the same kind of awe of actually standing before the real thing. And the same is true with God's word. Sure, our minds can get a sense of what we've read in the past. Right? If we if we jog our minds long enough, maybe we can we can remember some of the the key points. If we really strain ourselves, maybe a, a week from now you'll be able to recite one or two points from the sermon. But friends, why? Why would we want to depend on a memory when we can have the real thing every day? When we can wake up to this word that God has inspired and continues to speak through. Right? Solomon provides a wake-up call, doesn't he? Right? In a world surrounded by temptation, with our own sinful natures, The truth is our hearts aren't safe when we're careless with God's word. And you see, one crucial way you can avoid a tragic fall like Solomon's is by giving an honest answer to where God's word is in your life. It's a question. No matter how many people praise us for our wisdom, no matter how many accomplishments we've had in our past, even our role in leading God's people, it's a question we never get to stop asking. Where is God's word in my life today? Not yesterday, not five years ago or 10 years ago, but where is it today? Is it on the shelf collecting dust? Right? Is it open only on Sunday mornings? Is it a word that is just getting in your way, or is it the word that is directing the way you should go? Right? Solomon's tragic fall is instructive. We learn much from it. Right? It's, a, it's a warning to check our own hearts. It, it, it shows us the reality of, of, of where any of us can end up when we are not Grounded in God's word. But what about God's judgment in the second half of this passage? Right? What can we learn about God when he came to judge Solomon for his sin? 
Because even as Solomon's sin is instructive, God's answer to sin is even more important. And first, I want us to notice that when God answers Solomon's sin, he answers it with real consequences for this king. Right? We're told that, that Solomon's won't see his kingdom divided. That will come later. But we are told, if we were to actually read a little, one more verse, in verse 14, we're told that in Solomon's day, God is going to raise up adversaries from the nations against Solomon. And so before, Solomon's kingdom was one of peace. That's what allowed him to gather gold and peacocks and live in luxury and he could pursue pleasure. But Solomon's final years are lived under the threat of enemies. I think that's serving as this constant reminder for Solomon to see the consequences of his own divided heart. And so today, even as people who belong to Christ, there are real consequences for our sinful choices. But for those in Christ, when God does allow us to experience those consequences, when he does allow us to experience the fruit of our sin, when he brings correction and rebuke, it's always for our good. It's always to do good in us. And the greatest good that God can do for us is to bring us back to himself, to, to, to turn our hearts back to him. And I know we're not told but it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that after this visit from God, that Solomon continued to go after Ashtoreth and Milcom and Chemosh and Molech, these, these false gods. You know, Solomon's life, it wasn't as comfortable after God's judgment. It wasn't. But if he repented and he loved the Lord again, his future was secure. And so we have to ask, what would, you, what would you rather have? Would we rather have comfort in this life with our idols or eternal happiness in God's presence in the age to come? And to give us that happiness, we should know that God won't hide his judgment from us. But we'll use his correction, we'll use his discipline to bring us to repentance, to a renewed faith and love in him. So we see that God answers Solomon's sin with real consequences. But we see that God answers Solomon's sin by also remembering, reconfirming his promise. I will not, God says, tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant. As we read through the rest of First and Second Kings, we see that darkness 
destruction, death, all descend upon this kingdom. We see that sin will continue to bring God's people down. But never will God walk back his promise to establish an everlasting kingdom with a perfect king on the throne. So friends, God preserves the line of David here so that he can answer our sin by giving us the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Solomon's story. Solomon's story is how a mighty man fell into sin. And while ours may not make headlines, our life is also a story of how we have fallen into sin. Right, none of us can claim our hearts have been wholly true, may not have 700 wives, 300 concubines, but we've all gone after our own idols. Right, we've all pursued our evil pleasures. We've all sinned and done what? Fallen. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Right, we should see our story in Solomon's story. But know that there is a better story. Because Jesus is the mightiest king who came to rescue all of those who've fallen short. And you notice how Solomon and Jesus' life are similar. They both end in judgment. At the end of his life, Jesus also came under judgment. But unlike Solomon, his judgment wasn't for his sins. It wasn't for his heart that had gone astray, but it was for ours. You see, Solomon didn't have to see the fullness of God's justice in his life. But on the cross, Jesus felt the full weight of that justice. That there was no postponement, there was no delay. It all came on him. And what that means for those who would turn in faith to Christ is that there is no more judgment. That wrath is satisfied. And if you notice in our age, when anyone falls, when someone's lies are exposed, made public, our age is ready to dictate the consequences, ready to hand out the judgment, right? To make sure the person is, is forever covered in shame, banished from sight. And while, yes, there are consequences to our sinful choices, what our age fails to see is that there's actually a promise open to all, right? All who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's a promise of forgiveness. It's a promise that we too can stand after we have fallen. It's a promise that your shame can be lifted. It's a promise that all of your wrongs can be pardoned. You know, through our series on Solomon, we 
got to see a king who had so much but made a tragic choice. But in Jesus, do you see the difference? We see a king who truly had it all. Everything was created through him and for him. All the gold, all the silver, all the apes, all the peacocks, they belonged to him. We see the king who truly had it all, who didn't make a tragic choice, but made the choice to come to us, to take on our flesh, and to die in our place. Do you see how Jesus' choice reverses all the tragic choices that we have made? And so, friends, the response to Jesus' choice is very simple. It is to go on living for the one who has secured your happy ending. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that our hearts may be aligned with yours, that we may be full of your love to become more like you and to live in gratitude for what you have done on our behalf. We ask in your name. Amen.